Thank you, man. Tremendous song in light of our worship this morning and our text this morning as well. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter, excuse me, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Hebrews earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're joining us again at home, you're welcome to join us in the scriptures. This morning, as we continue along our study of the comparison of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the splendor of the Old compared to the greater splendor of the New, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this morning we're going to be uh, considering verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. Let's read that text together and as we continue along and conclude our service today. But if the ministry of death, it's the old covenant, in letters engraved on stones came with glory, and it did, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory which surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. This is the third comparison of the old versus the new. That rabbinical tradition of taking that which is lesser and comparing it with that which is greater. We looked in the first few verses in relationship to the internal versus external influence of the old and the new. The last time we were together, we focused on simply matters of life and death. The old covenant is the spirit of the law, the letter of the law that kills and in Christ and spirit renewal, Holy Spirit renewal. The new covenant, certainly in Christ, is a matter of life. And so, thirdly, this morning, we'd like to consider the comparison of glories. The comparison of glories, the glory of the old covenant with the glory of the new covenant. We've recently seen some amazing sunsets and summer moons, haven't we? It almost seems, uh, since COVID, we take more opportunities to get out of our house in the mornings and see the sunrise and see it set in the evenings and we're spending even more times taking walks in the evenings and considering the various moonscapes and the luminaries of the evening sky. God created the glorious moon to be the lesser light of the night sky and he created the sun to be the greater light to rule the day. When the sun rises, the glory of the moon slowly fades and the sun illuminates what we call day. In a very real spiritual sense, this is the comparison Paul makes here between the old and the new covenant. As I said earlier, in Jewish rabbinical tradition, Paul continues to argue here and for throughout the remainder of the passage, from the lesser to the greater. The Old Covenant by nature was necessary, and it was glorious. We'll explain this throughout our time together today and in the weeks ahead. It was not only glorious in nature, it was a necessary glory. 
Its glory is given by its source, our God, our creator. For the old covenant is and still remains God's law. The moral beauty and order of God is pure, unsullied, and perfect order. So when Moses descends from the Mount of Sinai where he received the law, he's illuminated in the glory of God's moral purity. So much so, the book of Exodus, which Paul alludes to here in the verses we've just read, teaches the Israelites could not look upon him for long. His visage was like one looking straight into the sun for a moment, only to be blinded by its glorious light. He had experienced the presence of pure, unadulterated holiness. He had experienced that which was God's glory. So we must ask ourselves, did law begin with Moses? Did law exist or even have glory before the giving of the moral code of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Sinai? We must ask ourselves, is God and has God always been pure morality, pure order? Well, we all say yes and amen to that. He always has been an eternity, pure morality and pure order, and he always will be, for that defines part and parcel of his being and his character and his nature. He spoke, God spoke, his orderliness and his moral character into existence when he created the heavens and the earth and man in his image. In the sinless, pristine environment of the Garden of Eden, God's glorious law of nature and space saturated the place where man first lived. God's moral code was indelibly and perfectly written on the hearts of Adam and Eve both made in his image. They knew no sin for a time. They enjoyed the wonder of God's created order in all of its beauty and all of its splendor. What bliss that must have been for them. How vibrant the bursts of color, unaffected yet by man's sin, must have been. How the bluest of blues must have shone forth in the sky by day, and how majestic and indescribable the luminaries that govern the night sky must have shone. How unaffected by sin and how joyful and carefree the creatures of land and sea playfully moved about. The law of God ruled and governed all that God created. Pure law is not designed to kill. In Eden, it was a way of life and it was a way of love before sin. So I think we need to be careful to not consider law a negative thing. It only became that because of man's sin. Law is uniquely glorious and beautiful because God is holy and beautiful, and all that existed pre-fall is an expression of God's law. Law is the expression of God's character. The expression of law is God pursuing his own self-interests. So when man fell into sin in the garden, the moral and orderly beauty of the earthly environment, it spiritually died. 
We call this the curse of sin. Sin stands opposed to all that is God's law because it stands opposed to all that God is. But God loved man he created in his image. And immediately God provided an expression of his moral demands. Animal blood was required and immediately shed. The skins of that animal were used to clothe the fallen nakedness of Adam and Eve. There God gave man their first opportunity to see a visual penalty for their sin that was an infraction against his moral, divine, eternal nature. Externally they were clothed and internally they experienced separation because of their sin and a very real spiritual death. God's law continued to function in the now fallen order of all of nature. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation still groans. Inanimate objects still feel the effects of this sin of man. But the laws of science and of nature continue to be expressions of God's orderliness. God's image in man, even in a spiritually dead state, continued to remain that moral code, if you will, that would prick the conscience of all who would come after Adam. In Genesis chapter 9, the Noahic covenant became the expression of God's law and the formation of human government. God instituted human government. It was established to represent the character of God and his justice. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that human government is to remain ministers unto the citizens of those governments for good and not for evil. As time progressed and the nation of Israel is formed from the seed of Abraham, the Jews, the nation that Moses led out of bondage became the elect national people of God. Having been brought out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness, God's people sinned. They continued on to be an imperfect example of God's moral law. So in addition to the laws of science and creation, in addition to the moral imprint of God's character and the fallen hearts and minds of God's people, or any people made in God's image, and in addition to the expression of God's law and human government, God called Moses up to Sinai, and the moral code of God was given. In addition to the moral code of God given in the Ten Commandments that we're familiar with, all of the ceremonial and civil function of the elect nation of Israel was provided, and those were the directives for the people of God to function in their existence together. This inscription on Mount Sinai is glorious. It's beautiful. It's God's inscription of the Ten Commandments with his holy finger. Law becomes at Sinai yet another act of God's mercy towards man. The giving of the law becomes a glorious expression and a reminder of the perfect character of God that man once enjoyed in the garden as they walked in fellowship with him. The giving of the law was an act of God's love for it would forever stand before men as God's glorious expectation for man that he would demand in time, that God would demand in time, one that would perfectly keep the law and lay his life down as an expression of love for the immorality and brokenness of all mankind. One respected author that I've read has said this, love is law-shaped 
in Christ, and law is love-shaped in Christ. So Paul explains in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the law given at Sinai has glory. It has glory. Its glory emanates from the very character of God, but a loving reminder to man of their imperfection and their need for a Savior. So let's consider this morning our next comparison as we continue on of lesser glory to greater glory. I want to highlight here several aspects of comparison, but before we do that, I would like to highlight really the nature of the glory of the law. The nature of the glory of the law. And then we'll certainly conclude with the greater glory of the new covenant. As is probably written in your study Bible, if you have one, a cross-reference to verses 7 and 11 that we've already read is probably printed there of Exodus 34, 29 to 32. If it's not, and you want to write that down, that would be appropriate. That's what Paul is alluding to here in verses 7 through 11. It's that uh, Sinai narrative where God's called Moses up to the mount and he's given him the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial, the civil law for Israel, and he's descending from the mount. And when he descends from the mount, God's people again have grown impatient and have involved themselves in immoral debauchery. And he comes down from the mount standing with the glory of God and those carousing in sin look upon him and they can't even, they can't even stand to gaze. Uh, a beautiful visual for us, an optic showing the certainty of the nature of the difference between wickedness and holiness. So what do we know about the nature of the glory of the law? Well, we partially read this morning during the Lord's Supper in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's journey back over now to the book of Hebrews and let's look at a couple texts in chapters 8 and 9 that discuss the purpose of the glory, the purpose and glory of the law. The glory of the old covenant gave for man at that time a possibility of temporary atonement for sin. Clear back to the garden, an animal was slaughtered. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. We know that God slaughtered the first sacrifice for sin. Man needed a visual. Man needed an optic to be able to understand that the sin that he had experienced caused his own spiritual death, but death upon created order as well. They needed a reminder that they had broken the moral code of God. And so what did the old covenant do for man? Well... Again, it gave a possibility of temporary atonement for sin. It was glorious because it allowed for a visual reminder, again, in a practical way for man to see the consequences of his own sin and the moral expectations of God upon him. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Again, I encourage you on your own time this week as we spend time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to volley back and forth between 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. 
But verse 3 of chapter 8 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that thou make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So there we have it. The possibility of a temporary atonement for sin and a visual reminder in the practical way for man to see the consequences of his own sin. Go over with me to chapter 9. The old covenant is glorious for that reason, and it's also glorious for this reason. In verses 1 through 9, the glory of the old covenant, and the pattern and the process which God gave to Moses upon which man was to function ceremonially, gave man access to God. Gave man access to God. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were a lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and to drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But nonetheless, it's glorious in that it gained the people of God through the high priest access to God himself. Over to chapter 10 and verse 28, one particular verse we read this morning. And let's consider another glorious aspect of the Old Covenant. Chapter 10 and verse 28. The writer of Hebrews makes a very, very powerful statement here. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We cannot look upon the law merely as a negative thing. 
because it is an expression of the moral character of God. We must compare our own sinfulness to that moral character and find ourselves guilty. The old covenant is glorious in this aspect because it screams to anyone made in God's image, everyone imprinted with the moral code of God on their conscience that you're a sinner and that you're lost. It's glorious because before we can be found, we must be lost. All of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior are thrilled. As agonizing as it was, as debilitating spiritually and emotionally and physically, as the Holy Spirit's conviction the moment we're saved was. Do you remember that moment, believer? Do you remember how you were paralyzed in abject fear because the Spirit of God convinced you that you were the greatest sinner on earth and you stood condemned? It's a raw moment for us, but a glorious moment for God because His law was effectually working. It has done its job. One author said, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses does die. Does die. Don't set it aside. Let it stand before your conscience if you don't know Jesus. As a holy enemy of your soul, until it convicts your soul of its desperate need for the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law himself. God's moral standards and expectations from creation forward remain. It is, the glory, it is glory for man to know that he falls short of the glory of God and his brokenness. So yes, the law of Moses, the moral code of God has glory. It still has glory. This ratified law would maintain its glory in the ways we've described in others until he who is the fullness of the expression of the law would come in the fullness of time, and that's Jesus Christ. The glory of the law having been shown on the countenance of Moses' face, though, was a fading glory. Verse 7 tells us that. It shone but was fading all the way until the perfect law keeper came to earth and he proclaimed the moral demands of God. And he did so when Jesus said to his listeners, you be perfect, for I am perfect. No man could do it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The law of Moses, glory as it was, could not enable souls to fulfill its own demands. No man can even begin to attain to the perfection of law until Jesus came. He is the light of God that came into the world. He is the perfect law keeper. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant expectation and the new covenant reality 
of God as the God-man. Jesus would be and remains the perfection of morality. He is the perfection of the nature of God before man. That's why Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen my Father. I and my Father are one. All who come to know Christ would be confronted with their brokenness as the living law of God before man. And before him, they would stand guilty even as he walked the earth in his life. It's the ministry of Christ underpinned by the Holy Spirit by which man could know even greater glory. Jesus Christ would stand through the age of the church as a more adequate representation of the character of God over law, greater, lesser to greater. The old law that was resplendent with glory of God's expectations now stands scarcely resplendent at all in the dispensation of grace. Recall our beginning today. If the sun comes up, the brightness of the moon is no longer bright. The greater light obscures the lesser. The law of Moses belonged to a vanishing order, one author said, an economy that began to fade immediately after its inception, as was typified by the divine glory reflected on Moses' face, a glory that began to fade as soon as he left the divine presence of God. However, a covenant destined to be permanent must be vested with greater glory, and Jesus Christ is that glory. In him dwells, Colossians 2, 8 tells us, all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. In Christ dwells all the perfections of God because he is God. He is the express image of the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, therefore being the glorious divine one of God. And as our text said in verse 11, for if that which fades is glory, much more that which remains is glory. Much, much, much more glorious. There's simply no comparison between the old and the new covenants. Some people cannot feel spiritual, one author said, unless they carry the weight of guilt. The law produces guilt and condemnation, for it is like a bond of indebtedness, a guardian who disciplines us, a yoke too heavy to bear. The Judaizers wanted the Corinthian people to go back in time and mix in the new with the old. And Paul reminds them that under the glory of the new covenant, the old had completely faded away, and they needed to be reminded that once born again, they stand before God as God's glorious Son, Jesus Christ himself. Perfected in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we find true glory, true peace, true salvation. So as I close this morning, have you known Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's law? Do you find yourself broken in the face of God's 
moral perfection, his beauty, his orderliness. Have you ever thought about that text in Romans chapter 1 in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6? It talks about the glory of God's creation. Have you ever wondered why every man stands without excuse when he sees the beauty of God's creation, the natural laws of creation, the natural laws of science, the laws of space? Day unto day utter a speech, night unto night shows what? Law, knowledge, orderliness, beauty. Even that which stands beautifully inanimate before us convicts our conscience that we're broken. But it takes the Spirit of God, the omnipotent conviction of the Spirit of God, to bring our hearts face to face with the perfection of God, leaving us, leaving us blinded by the light of holy glory as broken sinners, desperately crying out on our knees to God for salvation in Jesus Christ. So, do you know Christ as the spotless Lamb of God who fulfilled all of God's expectations as the perfect law keeper? Do you know Him who is completely and fully the overflowing of God in bodily form? Have you found in Christ a Savior who gives life that's not to be repented of? In Christ, you are reckoned to be the perfection of God. In Christ, if you would come to him, you would forever be gloriously declared innocent. That's greater glory. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let's pray together. we consider this text as believers as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed our hearts are thrilled as we're reminded of the lesser to the greater I know for a fact that there's folks here this morning that may not even be able to comprehend what we just preached and that's okay because the first person we want you to be able to understand is Jesus Christ. God sent him from heaven as God in flesh to live a perfect life, to die for your sin. And as God's perfect moral example, in human form, you must put yourself before Jesus Christ and stare into his glorious face and find yourself lost and condemned as a lawbreaker. But then understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Allow the Spirit of God to take that truth from John chapter 3 and pierce your heart with wonder as it's pierced simultaneously with conviction. 
for you can be broken over your sin and by the Spirit of God's help, cry out for cleansing from your sin and find that cleansing in the death of Jesus Christ who died for you. This morning, would you turn from your sin? Would you, would you confess before the holy character of God your own brokenness and say, Lord, I repent. I've done. I found nothing in and of myself to save myself. This world has nothing to offer me in regard to peace in my soul. I'm undone. Lord Jesus, cry out to him now. Lord Jesus, thou perfect law keeper, be my Lord. Please be my Savior. Those of you that come to Grace, that have come to know people at Grace Church, if you're beginning to study the Bible with them, if you prayed that this morning, prayed that Christ would save your soul, let them know. Let us know as pastors. We'd love to help you walk now in newness of life. If you still aren't able to comprehend fully the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's okay. Talk to us. Talk to the person you're studying with. And keep moving. Keep understanding. And keep praying that God would open up your heart and soul to understand. Okay? Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for this particular way in which Jewish rabbis would write comparing the lesser to the greater. Certainly, Lord, it lends itself to better understanding for us, the simplicity of that comparison. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ we're able to know the, the glories of your character as we seek to day by day be molded into the likeness of our Savior. And I pray, Lord, for everyone here that's uncertain of their relationship with God in Jesus. That they would no longer desire to even live a day in uncertainty. They would settle that matter even before they leave the property. And find peace for their soul in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.